Uh, well, good evening, Praxis. Uh, I'm thankful that some of you were able to join us just as we sang some songs of praise to our Lord and Savior. Uh, at this time, uh, we will draw our attention to the study of God's Word together. Uh, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter since February, and now we come to its conclusion. So I would like for you to please open your Bibles and turn with me to the end of 1 Peter. And for tonight, we're going to be looking specifically at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. However, I want us to read starting from verse 6 to just give us a little bit of context as we transition to the end of this letter. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, reads, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for just this evening that we can gather like this um, to praise you in song, Lord, and also now to praise you through uh, the teaching of your word, Lord, as we seek to, to know you more and to live lives honoring uh, to you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to, to receive your word, that your spirit would help us to, to understand, comprehend, but also uh, to live it out in, in our daily lives, Lord, and that we would um, come out of it with a greater hope and a greater trust, Lord. So help us, we pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we approach the finish line of this letter, the author, the Apostle Peter, draws our gaze and focus this evening to the finish line of the lives set before us. It's the 11th hour, the bottom of the ninth, the last quarter where an athlete is called upon to dig deep and persevere towards the end. And that is the same goal and vision that Peter has in mind as he nears the end of this letter. The components of perseverance, as Pastor Allen shared with us last week, were components we need to heed so that we may fix our eyes on Christ and endure to the finish line, to finish the course of life set before us. Despite obstacles and difficulties in the Christian life, such as suffering, persecution, evil, and opposition to our faith and beliefs, we may endure to the end that our suffering precedes glory, that after momentary afflictions comes the realized promise that we will be with Christ for eternity, and the promise that God is presently active in the work of restoring, confirming, strength, strengthening, establishing us. And even though we stumble and become discouraged, we will reach the finish line of life in this broken world. And then Peter concludes in verse, in concluded verse 11 with that what appears to be a climactic benediction. You could hear the end of the worship service where he declares to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Man, those words are powerful. Uh, that's how you end a letter, on a high note, right? Well, as almost as all of you noticed, uh, all I did was recap last week's passage. We still have three more verses to go. 
at least that's the kind of frame of mind and mindset I had this past week as I approached the real end of 1 Peter. I was thinking to myself, what do we have here? Verses 12 to 14. Oh, looky here, a salutation, a postscript. All right, there's a dude named Sylvanus, a few closing encouragements and wishes, and some gal or collective singular group referred to as she who is at Babylon. And a dude I think I know before in the Bible, Mark. Oh, look, something here about love and kissing. Well, that's all just very nice, ain't it? But the more time I spent reflecting on the letter, reading it over and over, thinking about the larger context of this book, mulling over the last few verses, I came to realize my own folly. I realized that I overlooked this truth about Scripture, that every word matters. After all, it's very easy to overlook the words at the beginning or the end of a letter. For example, in emails and text messages, most of us wouldn't think too much if someone ended a letter with, see you later, or till we meet again. But there are certain situations where we realize that every word is significant and should lead us to lend more thought and consideration for. For example, consider a, a guy and a gal who are in a blossoming friendship, friendship here, with each other. They start out as longtime friends who communicate by handwritten letters uh, when they separate due to one studying on the East Coast and let's just say the other person uh, studies on the West Coast. Now imagine one day as the gal opens a letter written by her male friend. She reads this for the very first time and at the end of it, it says, I love you, those three words. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that she's not gonna just skip over or overlook and think, whatever. I'm pretty sure she's feeling either one, smitten like those teen romance movies, like A Walk to Remember, or two, oh no, 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 he's reading into things, looks like we need a DTF, defining the friendship. All is to say that words matter. Likewise, in our passage today, I believe Peter is intending his closing words to be more than just a basic standardized postscript for formality's sake. It's not something to, to just simply be glossed over. Rather, Peter is drawing on all that he's written so far and calling them to remember the key themes of this letter. All the while exhorting them one last time so that upon hearing the letter that's read to them, they would be encouraged, they would be motivated towards action, that they would stand firm. Uh, these last few verses are instructive in that it challenges us to persevere while supplying us the hope to do so. Uh, I'm reminded of this where it says, for all scriptures breathe out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. So my hope for this evening is that we might give the attention that these verses deserve. For just as Peter addressed a group scatter, of scattered believers who were suffering and living as foreign exiles at the time, we too can learn what Peter has to say for us today. And to do that, I would like for us to reflect on the last words of this letter. A call to stand firm. And to do that this evening, I want us to consider this key idea from our passage. And the key idea is this, that as believers, we must stand firm in the gospel of grace for everyday life. And I hope that afterwards we'll understand with greater clarity and what it means to stand firm in the gospel and what it means for us in our daily lives, even now. And to help us work towards that end, we'll be looking at four characteristics of standing, form, uh, standing firm, four characteristics. And the first characteristic we'll look at is a fervent exhortation to stand firm, a fervent exhortation. 
Look with me at verse 12. The word here for stand firm has the idea of remaining stable. It has the connotation of holding one's ground like a soldier in battle, holding the front line against an enemy assault or advance, such as Ephesians 6.14, where Christians are called to stand equipped with their spiritual armor. And so the sense of Peter's closing imperative here is to stand firm. It means a consistent call to action of so for those Christians who are stabilized. And we understand the importance of stability and the importance of standing firm, such as in athletics and physical body mechanics. For example, consider a martial arts practitioner who maintains a foundational fighting stance to optimize the delivery of a power through his or hers kicks and punches. Your stance matters. One example that I think clearly illustrates this principle is in Olympic weightlifting. In the sport of Olympic weightlifting, the stance one takes to lift the bar when weight is everything. The positioning of the feet firmly rooted on the ground matters. That is why in weightlifting, the proper stance and relative positioning of one's feet, leg, hips, back, and arms will impact the weightlifter's ability to maximally pull an absurd amount of weight with explosive force as efficiently as possible. And that's why weightlifters practice foundational stances over and over for each phase of a lift that they make. A bad stance could lead to a bad lift, which could hurt and injure you. A bad stance can lead you to lose your balance, to not be stable and consistent, be consistent. And this is the idea here of standing firm that Peter has in mind in his final exhortation that he leaves him with. Because believers will face the weight of suffering in their life. They will bear the weight of persecution, of difficulty and opposition to live consistently for God in their conduct and holiness. They're going to face discouragement in the faith and anxiety during times of uncertainty. And so Peter's exhortation to stand firm comes from a desire for Christians to be stable and consistent in their faith so that we would have a strong foundation, spiritually speaking, to weather the struggles of living as a marginalized minority in a world and culture that does not know God and are in fact opposed to God. We all need this encouragement and exhortation for the hardships we will face in life and what this broken world will throw at us whether it's relational difficulties with others within the church, as well as relationships we have with people outside the church that we interact with, we need hope. All of life as suffering sojourners is not meant to be hopeless. Rather, life is purposeful under the good and sovereign care of our God. All because we have a living hope in Jesus Christ who has reconciled us to God. And so Peter summarized the purpose in having Sylvanus deliver this letter. Now, we'll eventually get into talking about Sylvanus and what the deal is with him being mentioned in first, uh, in, in first by Peter in, in, in here. But I'd like for us to first to look, uh, to wait a bit and focus on the purpose statement for why Peter has written to believers and had this letter hand-delivered to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, all that Peter has said so far is intended to fit under the categories of either one, exhorting, or two, declaring. Exhorting has this idea of positive encouragement, uh, even if it was a, a fervent tone and intensity behind all of it. That is why encouraging instructions are forceful in how they're stated. They sound like commands because the, that's what they are, imperatives we are to heed in our lives, but grounded in the grace of God of who we are called and uh, to become in Christ. Uh, for example, consider the exhortations that we've already been challenged to stand firm in so far. 
if you could look and, and turn with me, you might f- find or remember hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 13. Or conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, chapter 1, verse 17. Be subject to every human institution, whether it be emperor or governors, chapter 2, verse 13. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, chapter 2, verse 17. Keep your tongue from evil, chapter 3, verse 10. Honor Christ as holy, chapter 3, verse 15. Be self-controlled and sober, chapter 4, verse 7. Rejoice as you share in Christ's suffering, chapter 4, verse 13. Don't be surprised by fiery trials, chapter 4, verse 12. Entrust yourself to God, chapter 4, verse 19. Clothe yourself with humility, chapter 5, verse 5. Resist the devil, chapter 5, verse 9. And I know that's a handful. That's an exhortation in each of those verses, an umbrella so far as he comes to the final exhortation, to stand firm in the true grace of God. That is going to be the stability for a suffering sojourners through this life in the final exhortation. But why should we though? Because this fervent exhortation to stand firm in the grace of God has the underlying promise that if we persevere to the end, if we stand firm in the true grace of God, we will enter glory. The second purpose uh, Peter mentioned is by, revealed by the word declaring. The New American Standard has a helpful translation uh, by translating it as testifying instead of declaring. I find this helpful at giving the sense of what Peter means. Why? Because testify more clearly captures what Peter's purpose is in writing to them. Testifying gives us the idea of witness. That's what a testimony is like, like in a court where one functions as a witness. They've experienced what has transpired. It's not mere conjecture, theoretical, hypothesis, or secondhand. So while exhorting has to deal with given instructions, this declaring isn't isn't just a more intensified exhortation. Declaring means that Peter is a witness to what he speaks about. He's calling upon his experiential credibility. And that's why we can't just simply dismiss what he has to say. Why? Because oftentimes we have a hard time accepting what happens to us in life. We try to rationalize by saying to ourselves, I don't have to take these exhortations that seriously, do I? Does Peter honestly know what's going on in my life right now? I got no stability. I'm not grounded in any way. And life seems like one slip or mess, misstep from disaster. But Peter doesn't want us to be dismissive. He's gone through suffering himself. He's gone through doubts, having firsthand experience of the grace and forgiveness after denying Christ three times. He has experience of applying the things he exhorts us to do in this letter. He's tasted hope. He's experienced growth in his holiness. He's learned to conduct himself in the fear of the Lord. He's subjected himself to the emperor and governor. He's resisted the devil. He's clothed himself with humility because Peter has firsthand experience with the things he exhorts believers in. We shouldn't let doubts or questions or perhaps diminish the words spoken to us due to our circumstances. You know, maybe some of you right now question why we need to stand firm. That's the question. Why? Maybe you're struggling to hold on to truths in order to persevere. You feel like you're struggling or stumbling in your faith in everyday life. And maybe some of you are stumbling into sin. Maybe there's no stability in life for you as you're sheltered at home for over five months now and you haven't been able to gather physically with the church. You're trying to hold on to truths for troubled times, but it feels like you're slowly slipping or drifting from God. Well, for others, you're exploring this whole Christianity thing right now. Or maybe you only recently heard the gospel and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But now you're having second thoughts or maybe a, a difficulty with trying to figure out how to, to live as a Christian. 
Or maybe you're struggling with assurance or perhaps doubting if you're really saved at all. Well, the encouragement here, the exhortation is to be resolved to stand firm. Ground yourself in what you know to be true about God and His promises. Have a fixed resolve in how you live, but also in what you know about God. At this point, we must answer the question, just what exactly are we to stand firm in? While we know what we're called to stand firm in, uh, what do we stand firm in? Verse 12 uh, says to us, to stand firm in it. The it refers back to the true grace of God, but the true grace of God is preceded by the word this. We established earlier that the word this refers back to all that Peter has mentioned and written so far in his letter. And all that he's written can fall under exhortation and declaration, as we said. Uh, Well, to understand this, we have to understand that all that Peter has written so far, there's exhortations, which are imperatives. And these exhortations are basically applications of of the gospel for our daily lives. While the declaration, that is the indicatives, are statements of truth. Many times truths about the gospel that Peter has declared. And the point I want us to get in all this, in comparing exhortation, declaration, uh, is to see that these imperatives and indicatives are tied to each other. These statement of truths, facts about what Jesus has done by saving us through the good news of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and resurrection, and what that accomplishes uh, for those who trust in him for salvation. Uh, for example, I, can, I think we see some indicatives when we look at chapter 1, verse 13. We're exhorted to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But this is preceded by the truth that we have been blessed by God by causing us to be born again to a living hope and giving us salvation. Or maybe consider chapter 1, verse 17, where we're called to conduct ourselves with the fear throughout our exile. And right after that verse, Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways through the precious blood of Christ. We are God's chosen, a holy nation, which is why we abstain from sinful passions of the flesh. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 12, another indicative imperative. And just one more example, Peter exhorts believers to honor Christ the Lord as holy in chapter verses 3, verse 15. But just three verses later, we're given a statement of gospel truth. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Again, these are just a few examples of the true grace of God found in this letter that we've covered throughout this series in the book of First Peter. So brothers and sisters, we can find strength and stability to persevere in life because we have been shown the true grace from God. Peter declared the true grace of God throughout this letter. He's pointed us to the gracious promises and riches we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace is shown in providing us exhortations, which are basically gospel applications. It's a means of God's grace to help us become who we already are called to become uh, in this world as sojourners until he brings us all the way home to be with him. So when life is marked by suffering, marked by difficulty in this world, we can rest in the reality that there is grace for you in Jesus Christ. That there is true grace that you can stand firm in for you during this time of shelter at home and isolation. There's true grace for those those of you struggling to find a job in the current economy and are anxious that unemployment benefits might end soon for some of you. There's grace for you if your relationships with friends or a significant other are strained and you long for reconciliation and restoration. 
there's grace for you going through online grad school right now where everything feels so foreign and it just isn't the same. There's grace for those of you working in healthcare where you see and experience the effects of COVID on your patients as well as the hardship it brings to your everyday work in patient care. There's grace for churches who are struggling to figure out how to best shepherd and care for their people during this time among strong and vocal opinions that other believers might have about beating, gathering physically or not. True grace for you is available in all that Peter has written. There's true grace in this because what Peter has written is inspired by God, which means that this is the very word of God. And the true grace that Peter talks about points to Christ, that no matter what circumstance you might find yourself in, we can stand firm in the true grace of God as his beloved children whom he has called from dead to a living hope. We can look forward to our future salvation, that we have experienced the true grace of God in Jesus Christ, and now we are called to continually stand firm in the reality of God's grace that's richly supplied to us for everyday life. Stand firm in the reality that God's unmerited and undeserved favor is for us, not only in sending Jesus Christ to save us, not only in opening our darkened hearts to believe in Jesus when we were initially saved, not only for the grace of being adopted into God's family, that is the church, not only for the disciplines of grace as he works in and through us towards greater holiness, but also his favor and care richly supplied for us in everyday life that we often forget to see and thank him for. At this point, I would like for us to look at the second characteristic of standing firm. And to do that, we'll be looking at the faithful a faithful example of standing firm. A portrait of how standing firm is marked by faithfulness. When Peter concludes his letter with a closing statement, he calls out specific names. There's a reason why specific people are brought up. Well, we get a glimpse into who accompanied Peter or Paul. Uh, like, as, like in Paul's letter and his beginning and conclusions. We also get a glimpse into the character and reputation of believers in the early church. Verse 12 begins with the apostle mentioning a man named Silvanus. But just who is Silvanus? Well, Silvanus was also known as Silas. And while Peter and, and, and Paul use the name Silvanus in their letters, the author of Acts, who happens to be Luke, refers to Silvanus as Silas. It's just a different form of the same name for the same person. It means one a Greek version, one's a more Romanized version or Hebrew version. And Sylvanus' ministry was to accompany Paul in, in Acts 15, where we learn that Sylvanus was one who was entrusted with the delivery of an important letter to Gentile believers and to read it out loud and instruct and provide clarification for the church on something important. Not only that, he encouraged and strengthened others through his words. In Acts 16, Silvanus suffered with Paul when they were in prison together for their faith in Christ and ministry. Yet Silas prayed and praised God in prison, which then led to the conversion of the Philippian jailkeeper. And as we see here in the letter of 1 Peter, his life is really just characterized by one word, a single descriptive, faithful. Now, some might think, what's so special about Silvanus being faithful after all? Aren't all Christian believers characterized by having faith in Jesus Christ? And while it's true that faith can mean belief, as it often does, uh, the word group of pistos or pistuo, Peter isn't just trying to give us a fun fact that Silvanus is a believer. It's not his salvation that's being in question here or being affirmed. Rather, Peter highlights the expression of that faith. This was Silvanus's it was Silvanus's conduct and disposition towards God and others, and it brings toward 
attention this proverbial, proverbial lesson, that faithfulness often develops your reputation. Just like how a Yelp restaurant or Amazon product review uh, reveals the reputation of an establishment or a brand or product, you could say that one's faithfulness or lack of faithfulness will contribute to one's reputation. And here Peter positively affirms Silvanus' character as it apparently had an impact on him, as well as the early church. Why? Because Silvanus was faithful and did what he was called to do. He was dependable. He saw the church and the growth of individual members of the church as essential. Therefore, he assumed a great level of commitment and sacrifice to serve others in the church. He didn't set out to garner a reputation for himself as the end goal. Nevertheless, that was the reputation that was generated by his faithfulness to the Lord and to the church. He saw the exercise of his gifts and talents as essential, not out of pride or thinking highly of himself, but out of humility and thinking highly of the church and the role that was entrusted to him. And I believe, Praxis, that this confronts us with a very timely question, a question to ask of ourselves when it comes to reputation or the legacy that you want to leave behind. It should cause our hearts to ponder as you persevere in the faith towards the finish line, what epithet would, epithet would you want to be remembered by? To be known as one who is faithful to the Lord and long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? What sort of reputation do you want to leave behind as a sojourner here on earth, as a young adult Christian? Because the reality is faithfulness is not something we can just expect to happen, but something we pursue in our lives. Uh, that was the pursuit of Salmanus' life. And more specific, specifically, the reason why Peter sees Silvanus as faithful, and it's found in verse 12. It was through Silvanus that Peter has written to believers. Now, that phrase can be confusing or a bit ambiguous. And there's a debate about what it means exactly when it says that Sylvan it was by Silvanus through which Peter wrote to believers. And we'll briefly cover them. There are two viable interpretations on what this phrase means. Uh, the first interpretation is that Silvanus was the main delivery guy or carrier of this letter. He was the one who traveled and delivered it on behalf of the churches that it was addressed to. The second interpretation is that Silvanus served as Peter's scribe or amanuensis, dictating and perhaps adjusting the words of Peter, as some scholars believe, because the sophistication or level of Greek writing in the letter would have not been typical or expected of a fisherman such as Peter. But of course, this is speculative and at best offers a mere possibility rather than serve as a definitive proof of Sylvanus' involvement in the writing of this letter. After all, just because the letter was written with a certain perceived sophistication or level of Greek doesn't disprove that Peter could have easily written and communicated with variety and a level of Greek present that's present in this letter. After all, even today we communicate differently in different styles and syntax, perhaps in an academic research paper versus a conversation amongst close friends or speaking or writing to young children. Also, education and intellect cannot be perfectly measured oftentimes by credentials itself or degree from a prestigious institution. Peter could have learned through experience and time through diverse interactions he had on the commerce side of the business of being a fisherman. Therefore, given the context, we should see Sylvanus as the first option, as the bearer of this letter, the delivery guy. And that is what Peter most likely meant in name-dropping Sylvanus. He was the delivery guy who traveled as a faithful brother to Christians located in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Traveling to a few churches in those regions of Asia Minor would have covered anywhere from 200 to 400 miles over land. 
keep in mind without a car. He would supply the letter, possibly read it to them, and provide clarification on what Peter has meant if there are any questions. Similarly, in Acts 15, where Silvanus was sent to Antioch to relay an important decision on behalf of the Jerusalem Council to let the Gentiles know that the church was to be open to them uh, as well. He's a faithful man. Because of Silvanus' faithfulness, he generated a reputation for service to the Lord and others. The lasting impact is noted by the fact that the church was able to hear the exhortation and the declaration through this letter, as we just covered in a previous point. You know, when we look at men and women in the Bible, we shouldn't idolize them. The one we ultimately look towards is Christ. Yet at the same time, Scripture teaches us that we can still glean and learn from their conduct, learn from their character of those who pursue Christ-likeness in their lives, as well as avoid the folly and path of wickedness that leads to destruction. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And this is why we have mentors and disciples who influence and set an example through their lives as, they, as we seek to, to stand firm in the true grace of God. And so I hope that even as we come uh, by the names of other Christians in the Bible, we will not just simply overlook uh, what they're remembered by, but that we would be, it would be encouragement to us to stand firm in the true grace of God in their conduct as well as their calling. For Zalmanus, it was a, a word marked by faithfulness and working alongside Paul and Peter in gospel ministry and missions as a leader of the church. But we can be faithful where God has called us for gospel impact and serve in the local church. And that is one of the means in which we we can stand firm. And it's, this serves as, serves as an appropriate transition now to our next point, our next characteristic of standing firm, which is familial expression. Familial expression. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, verses 13 and 14 helps us to see that standing firm in the gospel of grace ex expresses itself in a love for God's family, a love for the church. Verse 13 starts with the cryptic phrase, she who is at Babylon. Just about any reader reading this might be left confused. Uh, who is this person? What is it referring to? It's referring to another individual? There's no general consensus among commentators or theologians. However, there are strong reasons to believe Peter is speaking symbolically about the church here. There's no strong uh, argument to think that this was an actual woman, as some have even thought that Peter was referring to his own wife here. Also, the actual city of Babylon itself from Old Testament times is in ruins right now. So one possibility is that Peter's referring to Babylon as maybe a codename for Rome, which is how John describes Rome in Revelation 16. Wherever Peter was, uh, though, when he was writing this, it can be plausibly uh, correct to understand that He's talking about the church, the collective church, or the local church he's at. This is plausible because Paul himself describes the church as Christ's bride. Combined with the context that Peter refers to believers as exiles in the beginning of 1 Peter, Peter addressed the church as Babylon because of what the city of Babylon represented. Just like cities like New York would draw immediate recognition of what the city stands for, such as finance, fashion, Broadway. Back in Old Testament times, Babylon, in the mind of an Old Testament uh, Israelite would have meant exile in a foreign and enemy nation. Likewise, Peter carries the imagery here to remind churches in Asia Minor that other fellow brothers and sisters who were also chosen exiles in the other geographical locations sends their greetings. This would have meant a lot because it would have reminded any single local church that they weren't alone. 
just as one local church of Christians might see themselves as exiles, there's others in a different part of town or map who were also in exile. For all believers are exiled and located in a place that can be considered to be Babylon, a place that opposes God or whose citizens does not worship the one true God. In addition to the church that sends greetings, Peter also mentions Mark. The Mark here is meant literally or figuratively as a spiritual metaphor. What this means is that Peter is revealing that he either has a son named Mark, and that's the one being referred to here, but it's more likely that Peter is speaking about John Mark. Obviously, John Mark wasn't Peter's biological son, so he uses the term son in the spiritual sense, like a spiritual son in the faith, just like some of us might have had uh, a spiritual father or mother figure in our lives. And we learn this from the mention of Mark, that he was with Peter at, at some point and shows a close association with the one who wrote the second book of the gospel. And as Peter continues, he says something that may shock us at first. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, I say shocking, not because we would naturally come away with a personal application of rampant kissing in the church, perhaps after COVID-19. Nor is Peter suggesting all believers should be kissing each other in order to show affection for one another. But we must consider the context and culture and what a kiss expressed. There were no romantic overtones, as one commentator writes. After all, it's called a holy kiss, not the kind of kiss the lobster Sebastian would encourage from Disney's Little Mermaid. But at the same time, we can't simply dismiss Peter's exhortation here. In our cultural context, the idea of kissing outside of a romantic relationship is seen as odd or strange. Some European cultures don't suffer from such a taboo, but actually practices such as social codes and practices of cheek kissing in France or Italy. But what Peter is getting at here is that this holy kiss of love is an exhortation to be affectionate towards one another in the church as you would family members. There's a a measure of comfort you have, closeness. Just like healthy love between brothers and sisters and parents, the spiritual version of that should exist among those you call spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, I'm not saying that when we come to Praxis or Lighthouse, we should start physically kissing, kissing each other. No, 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 no. What I am saying is that given our cultural context, we move towards each other with care as family members. We're family with each other. Maybe it's expressed physically with a warm and friendly hug, but the exhortation here is that we don't treat each other in church as distant strangers. The church is a family, and this means that our church should be characterized by expressions of friendship, expressions of fellowship. The church family should be a place where we cry together, where we laugh together, where we greet each other, where we forgive each other, where we share our struggles and burdens and support each other because, hey, we're family. A type of affectionate care that misses each other after not seeing each other for a long time and longs for reconnection and a reunion. And this type of familial expression of love characterizes Those who stood firm in the true grace of God, those who understand the true grace that they have received in in Christ's gracious act in saving us from sin by bringing us into union with him. But we have also been reconciled to each other. Therefore, standing firm in the gospel of grace means standing firm in familial love for each other as a church, both locally, but as she who is at Babylon, we show familial love to our extended church family outside Lighthouse as well, to other believers 
of other churches. So Praxis, I hope that we are all challenged by Peter's exhortation to show familial love towards one another. Even amidst disagreements between churches on, uh, on meeting again due to COVID, uh, amongst a divided nation and the political landscape and leadership disagreements, <clears throat> the exhortation remains the same, that we stand firm in showing familial love towards fellow believers. Which leads us to the last characteristic of standing firm. As we stand firm, we can have a favorable, favorable expectation. A favorable expectation. Peter ends verse 14 with a straightforward blessing. Just as Peter began the letter saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, he bookends his letter with a call to stand firm in the grace of God and a peace blessing. A desire for peace is a desire that we would be well. Something he knows all people needs, need to hear in order to be brought into a peaceful relationship with the holy and righteous God. But also because believers need peace for everyday life. This peace is bestowed upon all God's chosen, those who were elected even uh, before even the creation of this world. A peace realized by the sprinkling of Christ's blood, for he bore our sins in his body on our behalf on the tree. In Christ's death and resurrection, we are forgiven and pardoned from the penalty of sin, for he represents us before a holy God as unblemished and undefiled. You know, it's no small thing that Peter ends on peace. After all, Christians like me and you need peace. It was Christ himself who desired peace for his followers when he said in John chapter 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And here, Peter ends with a blessing of peace because he had already spoken about the sufferings of Christ. And we too would also experience and have to endure in this world. But while we can expect fiery trials and persecutions for following Jesus Christ, there's also, this, as well as the stresses of life, believers can face expect circumstances that could trouble our hearts and lead to fear. We ought not to. It's during times like this that believers like me and you need God's peace and strength, a reminder of the favorable expectation of peace that God gives us so that we can firmly uh, stand despite pressures and evils. He gives us and supplies us with the strength to endure. And if we endure and stand firmly in the gospel of grace in this world, we can bank on receiving our future inheritance, the riches of our salvation in Christ Jesus. This is the favorable expectation we can have if we are in Christ. Ultimate peace is what we will one day have when we see our Lord face to face at his appearing. Yet this is a peace we can experience even now in our hearts and lives if we are in Christ. This is the hope we have as suffering sojourners. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the opportunity for us to really come to understand what it means to stand firm in this world, Lord. When we face suffering, when we face trials, when we face difficulty, Lord, when we face pain, uh, when we struggle with sin in our lives, Lord, when we struggle with opposition, when we struggle with persecution, Lord, in all of these circumstances, Lord, in all these stations of life, Lord, help us to look towards you, Lord. Help us to be firmly rooted in the grace of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ and the gospel the gospel of grace, Lord. And help us to fix our eyes even now, Lord. Fix our eyes, our, our minds, and our hearts, Lord, 
so that we may live in a way that's pleasing to you as exiles, Lord, as sojourners, Lord, as salt and light here on this earth for the temporal time that you have us here, Lord, as we look towards heaven, Lord, as we look towards our eternal home with Jesus Christ. Would you help us? We love you and we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.